Hello, everyone, and welcome back to eMigCast, your source for emergency medicine ideas, information, and inspiration for medical students. I'm Andy Lichtenheld, and today it's my pleasure to host an episode that's going to be a little bit different than what we've done so far, and that we're going to cover a clinical topic. And before we get started, I want to say just a few words on what eMigCast is about. So up until this point, we've mostly talked about things that have been in the realm of logistics. We've talked about how to succeed on an EM clerkship, how rural practice might look different than what you're like to see at your institution or in a city, but we want to cover the full spectrum of EM topics that are relevant to medical students, and so that includes clinical topics as well. And as we've mentioned in the past, and you can look back at episode one for examples, there are already a number of incredible emergency medicine podcasts out there but we think we can add to that conversation by covering clinical topics in a way that specifically addresses the learning needs of med students. So this is our first episode on a clinical topic, and we're not messing around. We're diving right in. We're going to go over a topic that characterizes the specialty, perhaps like no other, a topic that really puts the emergency in emergency medicine. This is EMIGCAST on Cardiac Arrest. I would guess that for a lot of us, when we think about the things that got us interested in emergency medicine, taking care of patients and cardiac arrest would be one of those. It is quintessential emergency medicine. The stakes are high, the need is acute, and there's the potential for clear communication and decisive action to carry the day. But these same features can make for a really difficult learning environment for students. There is so much to know, and it's in a number of different domains. A lot of it can't be found in a textbook. Also, in my experience, the recess room can be an environment of barely controlled chaos where things are happening fast and it's difficult to stay oriented and keep track of what's going on, much less come away with any sort of cohesive learning experience. So for this episode, we're going to talk to two experts to help us get things sorted out. And they're going to have different perspectives because there are different phases in their emergency medicine training. So first, we're going to talk with Dr. Josh Cornegie who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine here at Oregon Health and Science University. And then we're also going to talk with Dr. Ina Schneider, who is an intern in the emergency medicine program here at OHSU. Now, what we won't do here is take a comprehensive approach to the medical management of cardiac arrest. But what I think what we can do is come up with a framework that can help us as students understand how to think about not just the medical, but also the teamwork and communication aspects of managing a cardiac arrest patient and also give us a context for our future learning. Now, there's so much to cover here that we're actually going to be breaking this episode into two parts. And here in part one, we're going to start off talking with Dr. Cornegie. And to get us started, I had forwarded him a case. And this is actually the first patient in cardiac arrest I ever helped take care of back when I was working as an ER tech. And so briefly, this is a woman in her 50s who had an, a witness out of hospital cardiac arrest. And she got bystander CPR. The ambulance showed up pretty quickly. And they basically just continued CPR uh, and... Uh, gave her a shock with their AED and began transporting her to the hospital. And they called us and told us they're five minutes away with this woman. And so I asked Dr. Cornegie how he would approach the initial management of this patient. All right, so I'm here today with Dr. Josh Cornegie, and we are going to talk through uh, cardiac arrest. So we're going to try to piece through and um, try to come up with a framework that can help us on how to think about this. And so the first question I want to ask you is, when you hear this report, what are you thinking about? What's going through your head right away? 
And, and what do you want to have happen beti- between the time you hear this report and the ambulance hits the door? Yeah, I think this is, this is kind of the type of medicine that we in emergency medicine all signed up for. So when we hear this report, I think everybody gets a little bit revved up, and, and for good reason. Um, this is kind of the exciting medicine and the time where we can, in a very short amount of time, hopefully make a difference. And like anything else in emergency medicine, preparation is key for this. So when I hear a report like this, if I'm going to be the provider that takes this, um, I do a couple of things immediately. Um, We're lucky in our institution we have a code white system, and what that means is we can page something out overhead that says code white to a particular room. So I figure out which room this resuscitation is going to take place in, and then I have that paged out. And what it does is it brings everybody into that same area. So we have our ED pharmacists, we have our radiologists, we'll get respiratory therapists there, um, and then a cadre of nursing staff that we can kind of choose from that are going to divide up roles. I also We also have the luxury of being a, a double-covered shop, so I will go and find my colleague that I'm working with if I'm going to be taking this and, and tell them if I've got somebody super sick that I'm already taken care of so that they know about them because I don't know how long I'm going to be in this resuscitation. And I think it's super important to know for our partner to know if there's something really bad going on with another patient that I'm already taking care of. So I do those two things immediately, and then I get my resident in the room and start kind of preparing everybody's roles uh, for what everybody's going to be in charge of. And um, here, at least, I try to let the resident that I'm working with, it's usually always a senior resident who's going to be running the resuscitation, um, either a PGY-2 or a PGY-3, and I just have a discussion with them, and I try to get the room very quiet so that they can announce to the entire room who they want to be doing what, and I kind of let them lead, and I I act as a team member for them to use me. So those are kind of the first three steps that I do to get everybody in the same place so that we can organize and prepare. Um, And then kind of evaluating the specifics of the case or what we know about the case, I think preparing all of our equipment is the the next thing. So having people ready to start CPR as soon as the patient rolls through the room. Um, If we know that they have access, that's great. If there's question about question about access, I always get an IO in the room because I can drill into the leg or into the arm in a matter of seconds and establish some degree of central access so that we can start pushing meds if we need to. I want somebody to be at the head of the bed with airway equipment ready um, to see if we can secure a definitive airway. So those are kind of my initial thoughts every time I hear like a code 3 ambulance with cardiac arrest coming in. Pardon a brief interruption here. Dr. Carnegie mentioned a term that might be unfamiliar to some, and I want to take a moment to get us all on the same page. So the term is IO, and that just stands for intraosseous device. Intraosseous as in within the bone. And what it is is it's essentially a needle that's mounted on a battery-operated handheld drill. And that drill allows you to drill the needle right through the cortex of a bone into the marrow space. Usually that's the tibia or the humerus. And what happens then is that the drill part detaches from the needle part. And that then leaves the needle sitting behind with the tip of it in the marrow space of the bone. And you can hook some tubing up to that. And then it essentially functions just like an IV. So you can run fluids or medications through it and think of it almost as you would an IV. Now we've actually got some more really good material from Dr. Carnegie on IOs, including tips on how to place them in case you get a chance to do that. But This episode was getting kind of long, and we want to keep these short and sweet and maximally pithy for you guys. And so instead of including it here as we were starting to run over a little bit, we went ahead and created a bonus track at the very end of this. So if you're hungry for more information on the IO, stay tuned to check out the bonus track for that. 
Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Besides the medical management, managing the team seems like one of the big jobs, and so communicating with the team, are there any principles you think that sort of apply to good communication with the team that you're trying to use right up front? Um, absolutely. Um, I think that communication is key for anything successfully happening, and there's a, a couple of principles that I think you can stick with in these resuscitations that will improve everything overall. The volume of the room is, is first and foremost to me. I feel like the higher the volume in the room gets, the more energy is in the room, the more natural epinephrine is in the room, and everybody's ramped up, and I don't think that things go as smoothly as they can. So I actually announce frequently to the room, let's bring the volume down, or I like this volume, keep the volume at this level. And I also really like to identify whoever the leader is. So if that's me, I want it to be known to everybody in the room that I'm the leader of this resuscitation, and questions need to come to me, and I will be, in turn, giving that information back out to the rest of the room, or the same thing for the residents. So I think it's pivotal that somebody identifies themselves as that resuscitation leader and all of the information is coming and going through that one person as opposed to just shouts to the room. Also, if you have time, um, introductions are huge. If you, kn I mean, in the emergency department, we're a pretty tight-knit group and I think that we know each other fairly well, particularly like on first-name basis. Uh, but there's, there's quick turnover, there's residents in and out. If you're responding in and, and outside hospitals to like resuscitations on the ward, you might not know people. If you have time and can introduce yourself and know the names of people, it really, really benefits when you are, are trying to get something done 10, 15 minutes into the resuscitation by knowing somebody's name because you can make eye contact, you can use first names and do closed-loop communication so that you're not just throwing orders out into the vapor for them to disappear because you really have to make sure that somebody hears what you're asking for and then verbalizes back to you once it's been accomplished. So closed-loop communication is absolutely pivotal for these types of resuscitations, I think. And how about, so do you have any thoughts about, either from your own time as a medical student or working with medical students in the department, in this, in this period of time, are there anything, anything you can think of that would be good for a student to be doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think time is kind of key and, and presenting yourself to either the senior resident or to the attending and um, asking how they could be most helpful. Um, if you run in after things have already started, you're most likely going to be kind of observing from behind the curtain or in the corner. Um, if you're there, if you're on top of it, if you're respectful and can ask how you can be of service, you're going to get a job. Somebody's going to put you to work and you're going to feel like you're actually a part of that patient's care and it's going to be much more meaningful to you. The biggest thing I would say and I even tell this to the residents, is I think some of our residents will make it through residency and never do actual chest compressions on a patient. Um, we all take advanced cardiac life support and BLS and practice chest compressions on mannequins, but it's very, very different when you're actually doing this on a live um, or a patient who's needing resuscitated um, uh, patient. And I think getting in line to do chest compressions, volunteering to do chest compressions is a huge way to... Um, lend yourself to be of service. Uh, some people might think that, oh, that's, you know, that's maybe below me or that's not my job. That's something that one of our techs can do. But if you really look at all of the CPR literature, the best evidence we have for anything in bringing people back is high quality CPR. 
And so I would encourage all students to actually know what that means, know the definition of high-quality CPR. There's five components to it, and there's actually numerical values to it, much in the way that there is for, like, SIRS or sepsis. There's definitions to that. It's not just pushing hard and fast on someone's chest. It's having, like, a physiological approach to actually performing good chest compressions. Um, and I think that's a fantastic practice. I think that that's something that... Um, all students would benefit from and all residents would benefit from at some point in the time in their career. I still, as an attending, um, will go in if there's one of my partners who's running a resuscitation and lend a hand to do chest compressions because I feel like it's very important to have that tactile feel of giving good quality CPR because if anything is going to save these people, um, that's going to be the key procedure that we can do to save these people. So those are a couple of things. Uh, you know, there's, I was a part of a traumatic arrest as a medical student, and um, I went to my attending, uh, who was Rob Hendrickson at the time, fantastic physician, and asked him, how can I be of service? I want to be able to help um, take care of this patient. Um, and he took me right to the side of the bed when they were doing an ED thoracotomy on this trauma patient, um, and I was the person who had hands inside the chest doing intra-thoracic cardiac massage. Um, so... I think being vocal, being respectful, and letting the team know that you're not just there to get a procedure or to take them, but you actually want to be part of taking care of a patient. Um, people will find you a job, and they'll, they'll find a really good, beneficial job for you during that resuscitation. All right, well, let's maybe move on and talk about now it's past the period where you've been preparing. You've talked to your team and got things set up, and the person rolls through the door. So in that period, you know, in between the patient making it from the ambulance gurney onto the emergency department stretcher, what are the things that you're thinking about? What are the things that you want to be happening in that period? Um, I have seen patients roll through the door in this exact scenario, and, and uh, EMS starts talking to the room and giving a beautiful, eloquent report. Um, and people are moving the patient over, and all of a sudden chest compressions stop during that process because EMS is coming off of the chest and giving a report, and everybody is stopping and paying attention to this report, which is very important, and then you look down at the patient and nobody's uh, pushing on the chest. If you're using that as a pause to check for a pulse to see kind of where you're at to start back over your resuscitation, which does need to happen, that's perfectly fine, but this can't take longer than 10 seconds and somebody needs to be back on the chest giving high quality CPR. Um, so that's my number one focus anytime one of these patients comes into the resuscitation bay. Having the volume in the room exceedingly quiet while this is all happening has to happen, but it's very hard to do. So frequently I have to vocalize to the room, we need to keep the volume down so we can hear everything that's happened so far. And really giving EMS the respect of providing that information will... I think put everybody back onto the same path of which algorithm you're in, what your next steps are going to be. Um, so those are kind of my first two goals. Get a good, clear, concise report from EMS and make sure somebody's continuously doing CPR. Then I kind of turn my attention to kind of starting over. So taking all of that information that EMS gave me and figuring out which algorithm I'm on. Is this a traumatic arrest? Because that's going to be very, very different. Is this a shockable arrest? Because then I know that I need to really be identifying which rhythm this patient is and preparing for that next delivery of electricity, which is very different than if this is PEA or pulseless electrical activity, um, which then I'm just going to be giving meds and go doing CPR and trying to find some sort of reversible cause for this condition. 
as I had mentioned earlier, I think at this point in time, there's some sort of communication that needs to be made between the team leader and whoever's at the head of the bed. The team leader should never be at the head of the bed. The team leader needs to be at the foot of the bed so they have a global view of the entire room and everything that's happening. If you're at the head of the bed wanting to intubate, you're not the team leader. And I frequently have this discussion with my residents. You can do one or the other, but you can't do both. Because once you start focusing on a procedure like intubation, you're not going to be able to globally control what else is going on in that room. And to be honest, the most important thing going on in that room is electricity, if it's a shockable rhythm, or high-quality CPR. And you can't do either of those things if you're focused on intubating. But I do think in the advent of video laryngoscopy, somebody should focus on intubation because I think that it's relatively easy to get most of these patients intubated um, and have a definitive airway without the interruption of CPR if you have a Glidescope or a CMAC available. I think in most modern academic centers, you have more than enough hands, video tools to make intubation reasonable um, without compromising the quality of CPR. So those are kind of my first kind of three steps that I want to see happen within the first two to three minutes of the patient coming into the room. Continued CPR, getting a good clear history, a resident respiratory therapy, or myself focusing on the airway, while the other person or the team leader is getting the entire team down the same algorithmic pathway of where we're at in our ACLS algorithms. Already jam-packed with educational goodness. We're about to switch gears, so we're going to recap here. But before we do that, I want to go over another little terminology issue that just cropped up there. So video laryngoscope, CMAC, GlideScope, what's all of this? A video laryngoscope is essentially like a standard laryngoscope, but wearing kind of a GoPro, if you will. It's got just a little camera somewhere in the, in the blade of the laryngoscope. So instead of directly visualizing the glottic opening with your eyes, the camera is visualizing it and projecting it onto a screen somewhere. I'm really selling it short. That doesn't do it justice and sort of the controversy that touches off. But we're going to cover it a little bit more and how that applies to us as students in the bonus section. So go there for details if you're interested. So let's recap now. So we started off with a case report of an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in route to the emergency department with CPR in progress, and we asked Dr. Cornegie how he would set out approaching this case. And he started off by talking about having some big picture awareness for the whole department. He wants his colleague to know what's going on so they can be on the same page and manage not just this patient coming in, but also the whole department. And the next thing he talked about is the team approach to cardiac arrest and how important it is to get the whole team on the same page. In his institution, he pages out a code white, which is really just the mechanism to get all the players in the same room so they can start putting their heads together and preparing as a team. We talked about once that team's together, the importance of getting the room quiet and then delegating team members specific roles in order to minimize confusion and decrease the chances that something's going to fall through the cracks. And then we want to anticipate tasks and prepare the equipment and the people before the patients arrive. Three tasks we talked about in particular are, number one, being ready to start CPR as soon as the patient comes through the door. Number two, being prepared to gain access with the IO or an IV. And number three, having someone at the head of the bed ready to go with airway equipment. From there, we moved on and talked about good communication habits and how those are key for the team to function properly. And we talked about some specific strategies. Again, being intentional about getting the room volume low and keeping it low. The importance of having one identified leader 
through whom all information is going to come and go, and also the power of simple introductions. And I think most medical students who've worked in a clinical environment have some sort of experience with how the simple act of saying your own name can empower people and can really facilitate good, clear communication. We also mentioned closed-loop com communication, and if that's an unfamiliar term to you, good news, we're going to come back to that in more detail in part two of this episode when we talk with Dr. Ina Schneider. From there, we talked about sort of med-student-specific preparation and how we can go about getting ourselves involved and being an active member of the team. And Dr. Carnegie recommended that we take an early proactive role in presenting ourselves to the resident or attending who's going to be running the code and letting them know that we're there to help. He recommended specifically that we get involved with CPR and reminded us that it is CPR that matters and saves lives, and that's something that we should get experience with. And then maybe most importantly of all, he reminded us that this isn't about us, and it's not about getting a procedure. It's about a human being who is having the most extreme health crisis a person can have, and that what we're there to do is to provide service, to be of service to that person, and that we when we communicate with our colleagues and with our seniors, our attitude should be one of respect and one of service, and that that needs to come across in the way that we interact with others. I think that's a lesson that applies not just to talking about taking care of patients in cardiac arrest, but anytime we work in the emergency department. I think those are words of wisdom. The next thing we covered is the initial arrival of the patient in the emergency department. And it comes down to three important steps that Dr. Carnegie highlighted for us. So step number one is continued high-quality CPR from the moment the patient rolls through the doors in the emergency department until the firmly on the stretcher in the resuscitation bay. Continued high-quality CPR. Step number two is respecting our EMS colleagues and getting a good, clear history and putting those pieces together. And then step number three, having someone at the head of the bed ready to address the airway while the rest of the team gets onto the same algorithmic pathway. So now, as promised, we're going to switch gears just a little bit, and we're going to delve into the care of the patient in cardiac arrest in greater detail. And we're going to do it roughly guided by the C-A-B-D mnemonic, CABD, which stands for Circulation, Airway, Breathing, and Defibrillation. So to kick us off, it's C is for Circulation. All right, well, what I thought we'd do next is go through kind of the the care then in the ER, and um, earlier you mentioned understanding the physiology of, of CPR and chest compressions. So tell me a little bit more about that. What is, what is the physiology of chest compressions, and how does that inform what good chest compressions are? Yeah, this is a um, huge interest of mine, and one that I'm actively doing a little bit of research in as well. So um, high-quality CPR is a, uh, an actual scientific definition you're already playing catch-up when you start CPR. Your most studies have shown at most you're 40% of a normal cardiac output with even the best of CPR. And bad CPR, um, you're talking more in the like 10 to 20% of normal cardiac output. So you're already barely making headway as far as getting adequate blood to the brain, adequate blood to the coronary arteries, and to, to the rest of the body. So focusing on everything you can do to maximize um, high-quality CPR, and we'll go through each of those components here in just a moment, um, is one of the best things I think we can do for these patients. So um, rate is huge. Um, you need to be doing uh, chest compressions 100 to 120 beats per minute, and if you're not monitoring this, you have no idea. Um, so some sort of monitoring device is pivotal for each one of these components of quali high-quality CPR. Um, just like the normal heart, 
if it is beating too slow or too fast. You don't have appropriate cardiac output if it's too slow. You don't have appropriate cardiac filling if it's too fast, both of which can compromise your overall cardiac output. Um, we talk about a component called depth, chest compression depth, and our goal is to get at least two inches into the adult thoracic space. Um, and then we talk about a component of lean, so not to have too much lean or to allow for full chest recoil. Um, the easiest way for me to think about those are systolic and diastolic heart function. So if you're not pushing deep enough into the chest, you're compromising your systolic function. You're not compressing the heart fully to get adequate cardiac output. If you're leaning on the chest and you're not allowing for full chest recoil, you're compromising diastolic cardiac function. So the heart's not relaxing all the way, it's not um, opening up all the way, so you're compromising um, preload or filling of the heart, which also compromises your cardiac output. And again, I'll say this, if you're not monitoring these, you have no idea. Rate's a little bit easier because you can look up at the cardiac monitor and gauge somewhat what your rate is. Depth and lean are very, very difficult to gauge without some sort of audiovisual feedback mechanism, and we can talk a little bit more about that because that's what my research is in currently. Um, ventilations are a huge piece of high-quality CPR, not overventilating the patient. So if you walk into any cardiac arrest, really in any hospital in the country, look at the head of the bed. Typically, you see somebody with a bag mask valve uh, or a, a bag valve mask over the patient's face, and they're pumping that about the same rate that the person's doing chest compressions. What that does is it fills the stomach and it also increases your intrathoracic pressure, which collapses your vena cava and doesn't allow proper flow of blood back to the heart, um, subsequently decreasing your cardiac output. So appropriate ventilations. Um, about one breath every six seconds is what we're trying to get people to do. And it's very, very hard to do that in a resuscitation setting. Limiting time off of the chest, as we talked about earlier, so there's multiple things that we can do um, to limit time off of the chest. When you're getting ready to shock somebody, instead of stepping off the stool and stepping back, actually just hovering above the chest and then immediately starting right afterwards. Um, when you are the person delivering electricity or the person leading this resuscitation, um, it should just be a mantra for you when you say, okay, let's deliver 360 joules of electricity. Tell me when the shock is done. Immediately start chest compressions afterwards. Even if a patient got a perfusing rhythm back, their, car, uh, their heart is still stunned and they're not developing adequate coronary perfusion, um, even if they have a beating heart after that electricity. So for another two minutes, they should still be having chest compressions going on unless they're waking up and pushing you off of them. And then finally, the last component of high-quality CPR is a term called the CCF or the chest compression fracture, and it's the overall percentage of a cardiac arrest resuscitation where adequate CPR is being given. Um, our goal is for 80% of that time to be adequate CPR, and adequate CPR is defined as, as providing some degree of coronary and cerebral perfusion pressure. Again, if you don't measure any of these things, Nobody has any idea what they're like, and it's very difficult to get a gauge of what those are like if you're the person at the head of the bed, or at the foot of the bed, just looking at a monitor. Um, so that's kind of where a lot of research has gone into, looking at audio-visual feedback devices. At our institution, we use um, 
the Philips device, the Philips accelerometer. It's a device that you actually do chest compressions on top of. It has a screen that tells you what your rate is. Um, it has a screen that shows you how deep you're going and if you're allowing for full chest recoil. Um, and then it also has a voice that comes out of the monitor that announces to the entire room. So hopefully you're looking at the screen and in real time adjusting your CPR quality. But then if you start slacking, the whole room knows you're slacking because the voice is yelling at you too. And it's very helpful because then you can figure out when it's time to change, uh, when it's time to get somebody else on the chest that is fresh and not tired so that you have ongoing high-quality CPR. How about doing this work with the feedback devices and stuff? Are there What are the most common mistakes you see folks making who are kind of beginners at actually doing CPR and real people? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, so the biggest problem I see with it right now is that we have these devices and no one's using them. We have them outfitted for every code cart and every defibrillator in our entire hospital, and they don't get used very often. And I don't know that people know how to use them or why to use them. And so I think part of that's the onus is on us to educate them. The onus is on the providers to say, hey, I want an accelerometer on this patient so that we can know how good we're giving uh, CPR. There's been a couple of interesting studies that have come out in the last two years looking at hospital provider CPR, and the biggest problem that we're seeing is that we're actually we're actually doing chest compressions too fast. So I think everybody's been operating under this mantra of push hard, push fast. The prior guidelines were a heart rate of at least 100, and it kind of stopped there. So there was kind of this nebulous, vague, can't push too fast. But just like any of our patients, if that heart's going too fast, then it's not allowing for adequate refilling of the, of the uh, cardiac uh, cavities. So, you know, if you've got that, that big guy that works out at the gym every day and he's up on the chest and he's going 140, 150 times a minute, you're probably actually doing more harm to the patient than good because you're not actually getting adequate cardiac filling uh, to allow for adequate cardiac output. So from that conversation about circulation and chest compressions, we're going to move on to the next step of the algorithm, A is for airway. And I started off by asking Dr. Cornegie about the basic airway maneuvers that we all learn as a part of our BLS or basic life support course. Basic airway maneuvers are really important for BLS if you were to come across somebody out in a restaurant or laying on the side of the road that you could do for somebody when you have minimal equipment until EMS gets there or some other provider gets there. Uh, but... In the ED bay, when you're doing an act active resuscitation, really the only thing you're probably going to be doing is trying to get a good seal with your AMBU bag so that you can bag them adequately. Um, most of these patients are going to be completely out, so I would say that using some sort of other adjunct like a, a nasal airway or an oral airway to improve their oxygenation and ventilation status would be huge. So um, when, I'm on, when I'm in the department, I actually carry an oral airway around in my upper pocket because there's many, many times where you're going to do an intubation on somebody who's drunk and then they start vomiting and you have to start bagging them up and having an oral airway at your, at your ready just so you can insert it is hugely important. And so I think that that would be a great adjunct for, for this if you're just going to be bagging the patient. Now we mentioned advanced airway and intubation briefly earlier in the episode and we've got some more really good material on those topics, but pithy. So we're going to take that material, we're going to put it in the bonus track section where you can check it out at your own discretion. We're going to leave airway for now and move on to breathing.
Let's move on and talk a little bit about a little bit more about the breathing or the ventilating part of things. So let's say that we're focusing on doing high quality CPR and minimizing interruptions and let's say we haven't got around to the airway part of things yet. So maybe we put in one of those oral airways or nasal airways and we're just ventilating um, through a mask. Tell us a little bit about what are your tips on doing a good job of mask ventilation? Yeah, so I think that in this case getting a good seal is pivotal and it's a two-person job. A lot of these patients are um, on the larger side, and which makes masking them and bagging them even more difficult. So having two people doing kind of like a, a double EC clamp is kind of what we term it because your hands kind of looks like a, your, your thumb and your index finger are making a C, and the other three fingers are kind of making an E. And they're going up under the jaw um, and kind of more or less pulling the jaw into the mask as opposed to pushing the mask down onto the face, which can sometimes obstruct the posterior oral pharynx and the other kind of neck anatomy. So you're actually kind of doing that jaw lift that we were talking about, elevating the jaw into the mask itself. And then hopefully we've got a respiratory therapist at the bedside who are, in these situations, I found usually much more kind of calm and know what rate they need to be bagging at. So as long as you can get a really good seal, you're getting a little bit of chest rise. Um, if you don't have um, a definitive airway in, then you should you should probably still be doing some... The ACLS guidelines are 30 to 2, um, allowing for a little bit of ventilation, but it, usually by this time we've developed some sort of definitive airway so you can do continuous chest compressions because that really is the kind of the overall goal. But um, yeah, a student with a good clamp, a good EC clamp, pulling the jaw up into the mask to develop a really good seal, and then a respiratory therapist with a nice, slow, um, not overventilating bag at, at about one breath every six seconds if you're doing continuous or a 30 to two, depending on kind of where you're at with your airway establishment. And how about the, the squeezing the bag thing? So we talked about trying to go slow, a breath every six seconds or so. How about, do you squeeze that whole bag in there? Do you just do a little bit? How do, how do you do that? Yeah, um, most people squeeze that whole bag in there, but I think if you if you look at that, that's probably more volume than what you need to do. And you have to kind of coordinate this. So I'll, I'll, I'll phrase this in the kind of idea that, say we've already got an endotracheal tube in and we're just doing continuous chest compressions. Um, got that in, you really should try to time this in kind of the release. So if you're watching the person who's doing chest compressions, trying to time that breath administration in the release of the, so when they're allowing for chest recoil, so that you're not fighting against that intrathoracic pressure that's already being developed by the chest compressions. Um, if you're doing like a 30 to 2 ratio, and they do their 30 chest compressions, once they get to like 25 or so, they should be kind of counting out loud so you know that they're coming and then they release, and you just want to give enough of that squeeze to see a little bit of chest rise. So hopefully you've got a great seal, and you give a little bit of a squeeze to see a little bit of a chest rise, not huge chest rise so that you're giving barotrauma, but just a little bit of a chest rise for those two, and then you stop and let them start their chest compressions again. We've just talked really obliquely about um, defibrillation. Talk a little bit about um, how you think about defibrillation, what things are important, um, and how you go about that. Early defibrillation and somebody who's in a shockable rhythm has some of the best evidence for getting patients back. So um, a young person collapse with a shockable rhythm, getting early 
high quality CPR and early defibrillation, those are the patients that are going to, those are the ones you're going to get back. Um, so recognizing a shockable rhythm, um, getting pads on them as quick as possible and appropriate placement, um, and delivering a shock followed by high quality CPR is probably the best thing that we can do for patients who are in a shockable rhythm. Electricity in and of itself is very beneficial for somebody who is in a shockable rhythm and getting that delivered as quickly as possible is going to hugely improve their chances of long-term survival with long-term neurological outcome. And that's why AEDs are all over the place now and thrown into every building that's of certain square footage or certain capacity for patients. And I think that everybody out there, not just medical students, um, not just providers, but anybody who might come across this podcast, if you can hear my voice, should know what to do with an AED because that's how you're going to save you know, the kid who collapses in the gym or the, kid, the guy who collapses in Costco. Um, and you're going to be the person who was able to take part in caring for that patient and actually sort of save their life um, if you know how to use electricity appropriately. Well, let's do a quick recap of circulation, airway, breathing, and defibrillation, shall we? So first thing and maybe most important that we learned is that this stuff really matters. High-quality CPR is what saves lives, and it's a little bit more than just push hard, push fast. So for chest compressions, we can think about it like we already know about good cardiac physiology. So in order to work properly, the heart has to have a proper rate, systolic function, and good diastolic function. Same thing in CPR. We want a rate somewhere between 100 and 120, not too fast. Systolic function, we got to get good chest compression, good depth, which corresponds to a depth of at least two inches in adults. And diastolic function, it's important to not lean on the chest. You have to allow for recoil so the heart can fill properly and there can be good cardiac output. Airway, remember oral airways and nasal airways is an adjunct for bag mass ventilation. And if you're interested in more, we're going to cover that in the bonus track. Then we moved on to breathing, and maybe the most important takeaway here, I think, is not to overventilate. So just enough of a squeeze on a bag to see the chest barely rise, and a breath only every six seconds or so. Easier said than done in a chaotic, high-stress, high-adrenaline environment like cardiac arrest. Lastly, we talked about defibrillation, and I think the big takeaway here is that defibrillation, early defibrillation, is right up there with high-quality CPR and actually saving lives and improving the rate of neurologically intact survival for patients. And the other takeaway there is that AEDs save lives, and it's something that we all need to know how to use. And that wraps it up for part one of our cardiac arrest episode. This was a little bit longer than we're aiming for, but there's just so much good stuff to talk about. And I think we've covered some great practical tips. I know that the next time that I'm involved in the care of a patient in cardiac arrest, I'm going to have a much better sense of how the pieces all fit together, and I'm going to be better able to learn from that experience. A huge thank you to Dr. Carnegie, who has generously given his time and expertise, not just for this episode, but also to make eMIGCast happen. We want to hear from you, so let us know in the comment section how we did with this first shot at a clinical topic, or what your experiences as a medical student participating in cardiac arrest resuscitation have been. If you have ideas for future episodes, we also want to hear those from you. And remember, we've got practical tips on IO insertion, some talk about medications and airway, all coming up in the bonus track, so stick around for that if you like. And also remember, we're just getting started. This is part one of Cardiac Arrest. We'll be back with part two next month. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you then.
All right, you're still here. Welcome to the inaugural EMIGcast bonus track. And really, it was because I just couldn't bring myself to delete some of this material from the episode. But we wanted to also keep it nice and tidy in case that's what you wanted. But you're here. You stuck around. Let's chat. We're going to go over a couple of things. We're going to talk about IV and intraosseous access in more detail. So we're going to get some actual tips from Dr. Carnegie on actually using the I.O. device in case you get a chance to do that. We're going to talk a bit about medications, but I'll let you on in a little bonus track. Spoiler alert, we're going to have an episode delving into that in much more detail coming up in the near future. We're excited about that, so more on that to come. And then we're going to move into talking more about airway, as promised. So we're going to start off with talking about laryngeal mask airways and supraglottic airways. And so it's maybe a good little intro to those if you haven't thought about them and how they might fit into cardiac arrest before. And as I alluded to earlier... We're going to talk a little bit more about the difference between video laryngoscopes and direct laryngoscopes, and we're going to get Dr. Carnegie's take on how that whole difference and the debate that goes on between those two modalities, how that applies to us as medical students, as learners, and as the emergency medicine providers of the future. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Carnegie, and I'm going to say adieu now, and we'll see you next month. Take it away, Dr. Carnegie. So you mentioned earlier the idea of an I.O. Is getting an, an IV put in these patients something that you even try, or is, is any kind of access super important, not so important? Where does that fit into things? Yeah, access is absolutely important. You have to have some meds to, if you're going to get blood and tests for reversible causes or give any types of medications. So you need access in these patients immediately. I think the ACLS guidelines still prefer a peripheral Large bore IV is is what everybody would want. If you could get one in each arm, that would be fantastic. Um, reality: these patients are are very clamped down. A lot of times they have no circulation. Um, a lot of times their body habitus will interfere with some of that, so it makes it difficult. So I usually, as part of my preparation, I will talk with my nursing staff who's there and be like, "This is the time frame we're looking at. Let me know what you're seeing. If they don't have access when they come in." And I, I usually give it a minute and not a lot longer. And if they don't have access at that point, and I've got two people working on both arms, then I will, um, as long as there's no contraindication, I will either uh, put an IO into the humerus or put an IO into the tibia. And I use them pretty, um, uh, pretty liberally. Um, I think that we can do a lot of work. I feel like they're very easy to put in, and I feel like they're very effective. Anybody can put them in. So the med student, that's something that... I I get my med students to do frequently because I think it's a great skill for them to know how to do. Just the little drill, or yeah, we have the easy IO drill, and that's the one that we use. So. And what what tips do you give them before you just hand them the drill? Um, yeah, so I, it's 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 an interesting device. It's more or less kind of foolproof. So knowing where your landmarks are are the best thing. So for the tibia, which is the one that I think I've probably done most, finding the tibial tuberosity, and going about uh, two finger. Uh, widths below, kind of inferior to it, and then a little bit medial so that you feel that flat part on the tibia. And kind of angle just a little bit uh, caudally so that you're not going towards the joint space. Um, and, and you more or less put it right there and drill straight down, and it will just enter into the, the marrow space pretty easily. Um, it's got a nice little tubing connection to it, and so I usually get a flush ready. I can pull back and you can see a little bit of marrow coming back so you know that you're in the right space and then you flush it. and then It's just really good that once it's secured in place and you've started using it, you're into your resuscitation, that you've 
frequently will check the calves to make sure you, you're not extravasating any of these medications back out of the marrow, which can happen, more, much more so in like thinner or pediatric patients. Um, and then at least the patch, uh, package insert and it says that, you know, after you're giving medications through that, which you can give more or less all meds through that, um, that elevating the legs for a short time period right after it's pushed will help it get into that central circulation a little bit faster. But. And so you just think about it as if it was an IV from yeah. that point on once yeah. it's in. It's... Yeah, you can give infusions through it. And, um, you can't leave them in inevitably or indefinitely. They have to come out at some point. But I think that they um, still play a huge role, uh, particularly in patients who you're having difficulty getting access in. And how do you think about medications in this? Is that depending on your algorithm? Is it... Is it super important? Yeah, so meds are interesting. Our, our level for level of evidence for which meds help in cardiac arrest is really poor. Um, I think you could probably get away doing an entire resuscitation and never give any meds. And from like a me- medical legal standpoint, I don't know that anybody would have grounds to say you did something wrong. Everybody still gives them, um, particularly epinephrine, plus or minus vasopressin. And then the big one, too, is amiodarone if people are in ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. And so those are mainly the meds that I think about. If I I get kind of on a a time frame where I'm going through a resuscitation, where I kind of try to break it up into two-minute blocks of CPR um, and a medication with two minutes, and then another medication with the next two minutes, and then going back to that first medication that next two minutes. And so that's kind of the way that I think about it. There are some studies that came out of Japan that looked at better survival rates if you did combine epinephrine with vasopressin, but I, that still hasn't made it, it, it's not made its way into the ACLS guidelines. It's still a choice if you want to give vasopressin with either your first or second dose of epinephrine, but I'd say probably 50% of providers do and 50% of providers don't. So epi and amiodarone, epi, vaso and amiodarone, I think have the best evidence if we're going to use one. Um, if patients come in and they're just woefully acidotic, patients I'm still seeing as I review cardiac arrest cases for the hospital, patients are still getting bicarb. Um, on occasion, they're still getting calcium. But again, whether or not this is proving any longitudinal benefit for the patient, I don't think that the evidence is quite there. Uh, but if, if it's needed to treat a reversible cause, acidosis, hyperkalemia, then I think patients are getting them. The LMAs or those other supraglottic airway devices, are those things you think that play a role? I think they do play some degree of a role. Um, There was a big shift to use them because uh, people were so focused on intubation that we would lose time in chest compression, so everybody's like, oh, well, let's just shove one of these supraglottic devices in and then we can do some oxygenation and ventilation. There has been a couple of studies that looked at those, and those, and mainly they were inflatable devices. So like the King Airway, which has a big balloon in it, or the LMA, which has a big cuff on it. And they looked at uh, coronary, or, uh, excuse me, cerebral perfusion. And with these inflatable devices, a lot of times you get this inflation that actually starts impeding on you know, the carotid blood flow um, because they're pushing against the main vessels in the neck. So I think that some people are, are moving kind of back away from those and trying to think about just bagging the patient or going ahead and using video and getting an endotracheal tube in them. There are some newer devices, the eye gel device that's more of not an inflatable device, but it's a superglottic device that will kind of just expand 
It's this gel type material that will expand in the oral pharynx and kind of take up that space without um, actually putting pressure on the vasculature in the neck. So It sounds like early intubation is something that, that has a role. Would you talk to us a little bit more about what's the difference between a video laryngoscope and a direct laryngoscope? And, you know, do you think as, as students, when we're coming out and starting to practice emergency medicine or residents, will the direct laryngoscope still be around? I think that, uh, yeah, DL, direct laryngoscopy will always be around. Um, we can't go to a system where we completely rely on video-assisted laryngoscopy for a couple of reasons. Um, as an intern, when I was a second year, I responded to a code in the hospital, and the guy was collapsed as he was leaving the hospital and was like half in the elevator and half out of the elevator. You're not going to get video-assisted laryngoscopy when you're trying to intubate somebody who's laying on the floor in an elevator. If you rely on something that relies on electricity, you're inevitably going to be in a problem where uh, if the power goes out, if the electricity goes out, you need something. Um, so I think that everybody has to have some DL skills, some direct laryngoscopy skills. With that said, I, I do think that video is more and more taking over because um, complications are less, time is less, first pass attempt is much, much more successful um, in both the adult and the pediatric population. And so becoming skilled at it is, is I think, absolutely required. Um, but I, I think being adequately skilled in both of them is very, very beneficial. Um, in cardiac arrest particularly, though, I think video is, is key. And anytime you have video, I think in cardiac arrest, you should probably try to use it. If you've tried to intubate somebody with active chest compressions going on, it's difficult. I mean, you can sometimes get a view of the cords, but they're moving all over the place. Sometimes they go out of view. Sometimes they come back into view. If you can get that on the screen, it's much easier and much more controlled to get the tube to pass through there um, because you've got just a little bit better view. Uh, so I, I just I think that it's much easier to intubate. It's much easier for everybody in the room to feel comfortable with you intubating if you've got a screen that everybody can see and you don't have to inter interrupt chest compressions. I think frequently people would hear in the past, hold chest compressions for just a minute so I can intubate, and then that just a few seconds that we think turns into 15, 20 seconds to get the tube passed, to get the cuff up, to get them hooked up, and then it's just another one of those uh, interruptions and chest compressions that really, really is not necessary.